you would, take out your Bibles with me. And uh, turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, chapter 4. So we are continuing to learn what it means to worship well, what acceptable worship is in the sight of God. I am trying to take uh, three or four services here. We're near the end. Uh, learning from Cain and Abel and trying to establish what God would have us as a New Testament church do in our time together on Sunday mornings. In a sense, we're laying a vision uh, for what our time together on Sunday mornings ought to be like. And this is important because Christ uses this time together on Sunday morning as a particular uh, means of making us holy and growing our love for one another and for the kingdom of Christ. And so uh, this is very important. I hope that you care about these things. I'm going to begin reading in Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Would you stand with me if you are physically able uh, as I read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be Accepted, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You may be seated. If a church wants to have an impact on the world around it, and I hope that's what you want, if a church wants to have an impact on the world around it, it needs to be different than the world around it. We so often get this completely backwards. We desire to be relevant. We want people out there to, to like us. We want them to, to be attracted to our church. And we want them to be attracted to our church because we want them to come and to hear the gospel and to be saved and to become a part of this family. And these are good desires, but so often we take them in the wrong direction. We think that if we're going to be relevant to the world around us, we need to become like the world around us. We begin to think that, that we need to be cool in the eyes of the world. So we begin to try and figure out what is cool in today's society, and we try and bring these elements of coolness into the worship of God so that our worship will be more attractive to unbelievers around us. Now, there are many problems with that approach. First, and quite obviously, the perspective that our worship should conform to the wants of the culture around us is fundamentally flawed because it makes worship about man and other people rather than about God. That approach to worship makes our worship man-centered, whereas worship, by definition, should be God-centered. 
if it's God you're worshiping. We're to lift up a kind of worship in our times together on Sunday morning. We want to lift up a kind of worship that God desires, not worship that the culture around us finds attractive. But second, this perspective runs into the fact that culture is constantly changing, which means that if we're going to try and keep our worship cool in the eyes of the world, we're going to constantly have to change our worship services because what the world sees as cool today, it may not see as cool tomorrow. And so we'll be caught in this... I picture a hamster running around on his wheel over and over and over. Okay, Many churches are caught in this endless cycle of having to reinvent themselves and reinvent their worship to keep up with the times in order to stay close to what is more fashionable. Well, also, if we take that approach, we will have to become more narrow as a church because people in their 20s think a whole lot different than people in their 60s. And what a 20-year-old thinks is cool, a a 60-year-old might think is is not cool, and vice versa. And so we'll have to choose. If our worship is going to cater to what the world thinks is cool, who are we going to cater to, the 20-year-olds or the 60-year-olds? Or maybe we should have two services, an early service for those who like the the younger stuff and a a later service for those who like the, the older stuff. But if you do that, then you've just divided your church. And you're no longer one body, one family. Moreover, if you try and do worship services based on what's cool, Hollywood will always be able to put on a better show than you. You'll always be sub-cool. You'll always be wannabe cool. And any of you who've ever been in middle school know that wannabe cool is very uncool. So it's a losing battle. Third, we should not take that approach because often what the culture finds attractive is in fact ungodly and has no place in a Christian worship service. As Christians, we are not to be like the world. We're to be different. So many churches around us today are characterized by 1 John 4, 5. Listen to me quote 1 John 4, 5. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Now, you hear that? John is describing a people, and he says the world listens to them. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want the world to hear what we say? Don't we want the world to be attracted to our message? So who is John describing? Is he describing the the hip modern church that we ought to become so that the world will like our message? Well, no. In 1 John 4, 5, John is describing false prophets. In fact, in 1 John 4, 5, he says that that is the spirit of the Antichrist. It is false prophets who are against the gospel. It is those who are against our Lord that John says are from the world, speak from the world, and to whom the world listens. But then listen to what he says in the next verse. Listen to 1 John 4, 6. Listen carefully about who we as Christians are. He says... We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Isn't that remarkable? According to John, if the world 
outside starts thinking that what we're doing in here is cool, if the world outside suddenly becomes attracted to our message, the Bible says we've been infiltrated by the spirit of error. After all, isn't the message we proclaim a stumbling block to the Jews, an offense to the Greeks? John says that it is only when the world does not speak highly of us that we are more likely following in the footsteps of Jesus, whom the world did not particularly like either. You see, church, when unbelievers come among us in this place and we pray that God would bring many unbelievers to come and to worship in this place, when unbelievers come among us, there should be one of two responses in their hearts when they leave. Either one, they leave this place calling us weird, saying those people are out of touch, they're too God-obsessed, or they should leave with a changed heart saying, this God that I've seen them worship must be so important for them to care so much about how they do this. And so they leave with a desire to know the true God. They see a God that is great and worthy of faith and allegiance. If unregenerate, unborn-again hearts, hearts who are at enmity with God, leave thinking our worship is cool, we are in deep, deep trouble because we are no longer real salt or real light. So hear what I'm saying. Churches do... uh, The reason I'm preaching on this and beginning this way, I'm assuming you have a heart that wants to see this church reach those people out there. Is that your heart, church? Do we want to see Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church be a missionary Baptist church? Well, if so, then we want to reach these people. And I'm trying to say there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And the wrong way is to become like the people you're trying to reach. Churches do not become relevant to the world by becoming like the world. They become relevant to the world by being different, by being unique, by offering something that the world does not have. Here's the truth of the matter. The more we try to be relevant, the more we'll ultimately become irrelevant. Every other aspect of our society seeks to cater to people. We can turn on our televisions and we have our remote controls and we watch what we want to watch. We get in our cars and we find our radio station and we listen to the kind of music that we want to listen to. We go to restaurants and we get waited on there. We get served by doctors and dentists and plumbers and trash collectors and numerous businesses. And if they don't serve us well, we can contact the Better Business Bureau to make sure they serve us better than they've served us. Every aspect of our society is centered around serving us. So how different it is when someone walks out of that world into a church and the worship service isn't about them. Everywhere else they go, it's all about me. We we drive to work each morning and we go past tons of billboards from different businesses vying for our patronage. They want our money, our attention. They want our industry. And so we have all of that. And then you go into a church and suddenly it's not about me. The local church ought to be the one place in the world where it is clearly seen, both in what is said and in what is done, that everything exists for the glory of God. People are not going to learn that God is holy and worthy of our reverence and our fear out there. If they don't learn it in here, they're not going to learn it anywhere. 
Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen to this, church. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When was the last time you left a worship service thinking, I have been in the presence of a consuming fire? If our worship is set up to cater to the desires and whims that we have, we will leave this place the way we came in, full of ourselves. But if we worship the way God requires, full of those activities which are pleasing to Him, we will leave humbled, filled with a joy rooted not in ourselves, but in the awesome God whom we have met with. So, the less we worry about trying to be relevant to the world, the more relevant we'll actually become. Everyone else in the world is worried about pleasing man. I'm calling on Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Let's concern ourselves with pleasing God because ultimately that's the most loving thing we could do for the world around us. Let me remind you where we are. We're in Genesis 4, 1 through 7. We've already learned two crucial truths from these verses. We've already seen truth 1, that God cares how we worship. There is a kind of worship that is acceptable to God. There is a kind of worship that is not acceptable to God. Abel brought a kind of worship that God regarded. Cain brought a kind of worship that God did not regard. And so God does care how we worship. Truth number two that we've already seen is that God has revealed to us how we ought to worship. And we should look to Him to know what that is. God has revealed to us how we ought to worship. God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, why is your face downcast? Why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Which implies that Cain knew what it was to worship well. God had revealed that to him and to Abel and to Adam and to Eve. They had been taught how to worship. And Cain's worship was not accepted because he worshiped in a way that was out of step with what God had revealed. Well, now we're at the point of application. How do we apply this to our situation? What has God told us as a New Testament church is acceptable worship? What has He told us to do on Sunday mornings? What are our times together when we get together to worship as one body? What are we to do? Well, that's where we are. And so I want to draw your attention to some New Testament passages that help us to apply the lesson of Cain and Abel to our situation um, trying to decide what to say. Let me add this as a parenthesis. Sometimes when I talk about worship and these things that we do, I, I talk about other churches out there, and I say, you know, there are other churches that don't do this and other churches that don't do that. And I, I want you to understand that even though sometimes I talk about other churches, I do not do that um, uh, mean-spirited. Um, that we are to show grace and thankfulness to God for His work in other churches. I'm not trying to pick on other churches. I just want you to see that I'm trying to point us down a path that sometimes is rarely taken, but I still believe it's right. And so when you hear me say, you know, other churches don't do this, or other churches don't do that, don't think that I, I have an a evil spirit towards other churches. I don't. Folks, none of us have this completely figured out. 
And we need to be in prayer for them just as we're in prayer for us and seek to be a blessing to other churches. So hear that as we learn uh, what God tells us to do in our worship services. Turn with me first to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, you'll find this passage on page 992. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy is serving as a pastor at the church in Ephesus when he receives this letter. And uh, he hears this message from Paul. Verse 13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Here we have the Apostle Paul giving this command to Timothy. Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Timothy, preach as well. Exhortation, teaching, that's in that verse. But Timothy, make sure that the Scriptures are publicly read. What is the first thing that God has called us to do in our time together? Read my word. Hear from me. Now, in the first century, this was very, very important. Because in that time, people didn't have Bibles for themselves. The vast majority of believers had no copy of God's word. Moreover, uh, the vast majority of people couldn't read even if they had had a copy of God's Word. And so at these gatherings, that was the time when most believers heard the Word of God. But it's still important for us. Even though most of us have our own copies of God's Word, even though I assume most of us, we can read our copies of God's Word, it is still important that when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we have the public reading of Scripture. Why? Well, first, because worship is always a response to something God has said or done. That's what worship is. It's a a response to who God is, to what He has revealed to us about Himself, what He has done in our lives. Hopefully, the reason you're here this morning, the reason you got up this morning and brushed your teeth and took your shower and put on your clothes and, and got yourself into the car and you got yourself here to church, you did that because you want to give God the worship He deserves. And why do you want to worship Him? As a response to something great He has done in your life. Isn't that true? Isn't your worship a response? But there are times when we come together and your heart might be less inclined to worship than it ought to be. Have you ever had one of those Sunday mornings where you come into the worship service and it's time to worship God, but your heart just isn't there? You're just not full of thanksgiving to God? Well, one of the reasons that God commands us to publicly read the Scriptures is to give you food to get your energy up. Does that make sense? The the Bible is read to you to give you truth that your heart receives that truth and says, yes, I have reason to worship. Yes, I have reason to love. This morning we read from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you hear that. Right? And when you hear that, what does it do? It says to you, I am here for a reason. God is speaking to me. And therefore, let me respond with a heart of love. And so we read God's word in order that we might respond to it in worship. During the sermon, 
The church family is gathered around a preacher, an under-shepherd, who does his best with God's help to try and explain God's Word. But when we read the Scriptures, we are gathered around the very feet of God Himself, and He addresses us directly. The preaching is important. The public reading of Scripture is even more important. That's why it's so sad that in many church services today, there is no longer any time set aside for the public reading of God's Word. If you were to walk into most any typical Baptist church, you might find the Scriptures read once the whole service, and that's right before the preacher preaches. And sometimes the preacher will say, the chapter's too long this morning, I'll just reference some verses as I preach as if his sermon is more important than the Scriptures. And he wants to make time for his sermon, so there's no time for the Scriptures. Well, friends, God has commanded us to publicly read the Word of God. Here is the real irony. Do you know what churches, if you were to gather with them on Sunday morning, have the most reading of the Word of God in their services? They tend to be the most liberal churches. It tend to be the most, those churches that still have a tradition of using a high formal liturgy in which they follow a programmatic way of doing worship with standing up and sitting down and kneeling. But a part of that is there to read the Scriptures at different times. And so many of the churches that do not call the Bible infallible, many churches that do not say that the Bible is inerrant, many churches that have long ago lost their respect for the Bible still have services packed full of Bible. But you go to most Southern Baptist churches, which say we believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God, the only source of truth and light for us, and you find so little of it read in their worship together. The Bible calls us to read the Scriptures publicly. Now, this can be done in a lot of ways. The preacher ought to read the Word of God publicly before he preaches. We stand and we do that. Um, a lot of churches use uh, Scripture as a call to worship, as, as, as the very first thing in Scripture. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. And they begin with a, a call to worship that calls the church through the Scriptures to worship. Christ Baptist Church, we have such a good relationship with them, and they're, they're trying so hard to worship well over there in Wilson. And one of the things that they're doing is they each week during their service, they read a psalm. They've been going through the book of Psalms now. They're almost at the end of it, and they read a different psalm each week. There are churches that read a chapter of the New Testament each Sunday morning and a chapter of the Old Testament each Sunday night so that over a matter of years, the whole Bible has been read publicly to the church family. The fact of the matter is that there are a multitude of ways that churches can publicly read the Scriptures, but you and I ought to see that part of our worship as important because God has commanded it and He uses it for our good. It ought to be an event, a special time together as we together receive God's Word directly from Him. What should we include in our worship services, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church? the public reading of Scripture. One more this morning, and that's prayer. At our time choosing which text to point you to, there's so many. Look with me at Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Um, the letters of the New Testament are filled with commands for God's people to pray. 
Paul told the church in Rome, Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. And so there, there are so many examples we could look at of God's people being called to pray, but there, come, there could be some snippety person who comes in and says, well now, maybe that's meant for individual Christians. Maybe you're to pray over here without ceasing, and I'm to pray over here without ceasing, but maybe the Bible doesn't say we should pray together. Well, first, I don't know who would say that, but if somebody did, we could point them to the example of the apostles in Acts chapter 2, right? Remember Acts 2, 42? Right? You have the, the early church, the first church. The apostles are serving as the pastors. And we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so in the life of the early church, praying together was a part of their vibrant life together. Well, we could also look here at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7. It's a passage you know very well. It is what's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, although the Lord's Prayer is really John 17. This is the disciples' prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And in John 6, just before that, and beginning in verse 5, Jesus taught us not to pray like the hypocrites. We're not to pray in such a way that we want the attention of others. We're not to, to pray with ostentation so that I want you to see me and to look at how good I am in my prayers. No, Jesus says when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, right? But then, when He starts teaching us how to pray, look at what He says in verse 7. Our Father. Whose Father? Our Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. In other words, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is a corporate prayer. So you see, we are to pray in private. Go into your room. Do shut your door. Do spend time praying to God in private. But also, there is a kind of, of time when Christians gather, gather together to pray together corporately. Jesus commanded that, and the disciples obeyed it, and the apostles repeated His teaching. Now, friends, if we want to be the cool church, prayer is not a good thing to have. Because there is nothing that unbelievers like least than sitting in a church where the church family spends time praying to God. How boring. How dull. Yet God has called us to pray seriously to pray earnestly, to pray penitently to God. We have in our day completely lost sight of the value of corporate prayer. This, when we pray together, when we have men come up to the pool and lead us in prayer, that is not just them praying and us watching. It's not a spectator sport, right? It's not like watching a game. If, if the Brad comes up to preach, we don't just sit there and go, go Brad, go Brad, and watch him while he prays, right? We participate in the prayer. As He is praying, we are praying. We are praying together as a family. It is a time for us with one heart and one mind to unite together in our spirits and to bring a common prayer up to the throne of grace. That's why I've tried to encourage us when the prayer is over to have a corporate amen that we say together because that's our way of saying this is our prayer together. Not just His prayer. Our prayer. 
Oh, friends, worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is something we participate in together as a family. Even now, I'm speaking, but you're active in listening. You should be involved in hearing what I'm saying. You are worshiping as you seek to be attentive and hear. Your stomach starts to growl. You start to feel a little tired. Your mind starts to get a little distracted. And you say, no, I'm worshiping God. And you refocus again. You're worshiping through that. That's what worship is to be. And we're to worship together in our prayers. Our corporate prayers are a time for us to pray for our church, our families, our community, our nation, our world, our missionaries, and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted across the globe. Another thing we need to remember is that our corporate prayers are an opportunity for learning. Most of us, I would dare say, learn to pray at home, from our parents, hopefully, and from our gatherings on Sundays. We learn to pray in our Sunday school classes and in our worship services. So our prayers together on Sunday morning are so important, and on Sunday evening and on Wednesday evening are so important because it is during that time that we set the example of what prayer is to be. Children are learning how to pray when we pray on Sundays. Adults are learning how to pray when we pray on Sundays. And if we care about the prayer life of our church as individuals, then we should set the standard of that prayer life when we're together in our worship services. Our times of corporate prayer give us an opportunity to put ourselves in a proper posture to receive the Word of God. We need to approach God with clean hands and a pure heart It is helpful to have a time in which we can go to God individually and corporately and confess our sins, repent of them in God's presence, and thank Him again for His forgiveness in Christ. Prayer is one of the ways that we humble ourselves before we come to the preaching of the Word. And finally, corporate prayer just makes sense because worship is about praising God. And we're not just supposed to praise God with our hands, maybe during the offering. We're not just supposed to praise God with our feet when we stand for the reading of God's Word. But where do we most praise God with? What what, what part of our body? Our lips, right? So we use our lips to praise God. Praise means we're speaking to Him. How can you say you're worshiping God if you don't even talk to Him? Right? What kind of praising God is it when you don't actually speak to God? And so, of course, prayer is to be a part of the service. I will thank you in your congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Psalm 35, 18. Does the Bible tell us how to do these public prayers? Not really. It gives us a lot of freedom. We're to use our wisdom, of course. We're to pray in a way that is godly, but there's a lot of freedom. Some people... Take this very important, these times of public prayer, and if they're going to come and lead a prayer, they'll write out the prayer before they come up because they want to pray well and teach good things in the prayer. That's not inappropriate. That's fine. That shows humility. Others will will outline what they want to say because they don't want to get up here and their mind goes blank and they don't know what to say. So so they'll just outline, I'm going to pray for this, this, and this, and then they lead the church in prayer. Others come up and they say, I'm going to trust God to give me the words I need. I've maybe thought about it a little bit, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. There's all different ways to do it, but the point is, do it, right? This is something God has commanded us to do. Read my word, God talking to us, and pray, us talking to God. The late uh, James Montgomery Boyce, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Philadelphia for so many years, 
He once looked at the churches around his city and how they were worshiping and how it seemed like prayer, us talking to God, had pretty much all but been lost. Just a little snippet prayer at the beginning and the end. And he looked at how the Word of God, God speaking to us, had almost all but been lost in the worship services. And he asked this question. He said, if we're not talking to God through prayers, how can we call it worship if we have not communed with Him and He has not communed with us? And so, we want to include the public reading of Scripture and the corporate prayers in our worship services. Let me close. This is one of the best ways to tell whether or not you have truly been saved. Do you have a heart that enjoys talking to God in prayer and hearing from Him in His Word? Or does that sound dull to you? Does that sound boring? How could it possibly be boring to talk with the Creator of the universe? Explain that one to me. How many of us would jump to talk to the latest celebrity or the president or some human figure, and yet we have a chance to communicate with God and to have Him communicate with us. And we say, oh, what's wrong with our hearts? That's why we need the Spirit of God to give us grace and worship. It is those who have been saved that will have a new heart which is thrilled to gather with God's people so that together as a family we can communicate to our Heavenly Father and have Him communicate to us. What about you? Do you have that heart? Has that heart been made yours in Jesus? Our Savior died as a substitute for sinners on the cross. He took the punishment our sins deserved if we believe so that by trusting Him, His death is applied to us and our sins are forgiven and we're reconciled to God. And Jesus did all that so that now seated at the right hand of God, He could send His Holy Spirit and say, Spirit, I want you to go to men and women in my world and I want you to go down there and I want you to give them new hearts that love to worship me. Has that happened for you? Have you believed the gospel of Jesus? Do you have a heart that believes the gospel and has been radically changed by the truth that Christ has died for you and saved your soul and is bringing you to heaven and is working all for your good and then nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Has the Spirit come and changed your heart so there's nothing better in the world you'd rather do than be with God? You have that. And if you don't, I would plead with you this morning Go to the Lord with whatever capacity you have. Throw yourself on Jesus for salvation and pray that God would give you that new heart.